We live in a world that is increasingly uh, suspicious and flat out rebellious uh, towards authority. No one's going to tell me what to do. Uh, we, we used to be a society that was very structured, that, that had hierarchies in place and uh, systems of authority. And uh, for, sometimes for good reasons and other times for more unclear reasons, those, those authority figures are often being questioned. You think about teachers in schools, the, the relationship between a, a student and the teacher, that authority is no longer there. To be sent to the principal's office isn't as big of a deal as it was when we were kids. And even when the teacher or the principal reach out to the parent to say, hey, help us, help your child, the parent, the, the parental authority has broken down as well. And certain things have happened in our culture that, that make church authority hard for people to, uh, to submit to. Or you think about the last couple of years, you think about medical authority or political authority. It used to just be assumed that people in particular positions were respected just because of the office in which they find themselves. And now, kind of the instinctual response in our culture is, if anyone tells me what to do, I am not going to listen to them. Uh, furthermore, we live in a, a world that sociologists call, sociologists call increasingly atomized, that we are, we are increasingly independent and isolated from one another. Social media has not helped us socialize. In fact, it has divided us uh, ideologically, but that it's also divided us Logistically and physically, people just don't spend time in places interacting with people anymore. Uh, people used to gather in churches. Now people want to do church online. People used to go to the grocery store and see the same person at the checkout. Now they do click and collect and pick it up in the parking lot. People used to go to the movies and, and experience a, 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 a cinema, uh, uh, sorry, experience a movie and together in community. Now all of that is just stream. We are increasingly isolated and alienated from one another. And then furthermore, we're more impatient than we ever were before. When the show on Netflix we're trying to watch doesn't stream as quickly as we want it to. When we happen to go into a grocery store and do the self-checkout and our green light turns to a red light and now we got to wait for a real human being to come and swipe their card and weigh your broccoli for you. <laughs> we're like, we get, it's like we get itchy all over. We're just like, I need to be somewhere. There's something that I need to do. In this world that is continually questioning authority, in this world that is hyper-individualized, and in this world that is increasingly impatient, Jesus speaks to us and says, I know you want to reject authority, but Jesus says, I am the ultimate authority. And the Word of God needs, don't, don't say don't tell me what to do, the Word of God is going to tell you how you should live your life. And in a world that's increasingly individualized and atomized and alienated from one another, if you're following Jesus, it's, it's, it's not just you and him. He is going to lead you right into a community, right into relationships. And in this impatient, got to get things done, got to keep things moving, need to be productive, on the clock world, Jesus tells us to slow down, to stop, and to do nothing but pray and commune with our Father. 
You see, the world is heading in one direction, and Jesus is calling us to follow him in a totally other direction. The world is saying, reject authority, rebel against all authority, only listen to yourself. And Jesus says, no, listen to me and listen to the word of God. The world is saying, you don't need relationships. You can just have everything you need just all on your own. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to lead you into community. And the world says, we got to get things done. Yesterday is too late. It should have been finished five minutes ago. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Jesus says, slow down and to pray. We've been in the series uh, called, It's All About Jesus. And last week we looked at this beautiful passage of scripture from Colossians chapter 1 that showed that Jesus is, is the God of creation. He's over all. He made everything. And that he's the God of reconciliation because we his creatures rebelled against him but he died on the cross in order to restore and reconcile that relationship. And he's the God of mission. He has called us to participate in spreading his message to the ends of the earth. And the aim of this series is to look at all that he is and allow that to shape all that we do. And so if you look at how Jesus made disciples, he made disciples by teaching the word of God as the authority. He made disciples by creating a group of 12 who were with him, who were fellowshipping with him, who were engaged in community together, and we see that he made disciples by, by praying himself and teaching his disciples how to pray and the importance of prayer. And so the title for today's message is Biblically, Relationally, Prayerfully. That if we want to make disciples the way that Jesus made disciples, we want to do that in, in a, a biblical way, in a relational way, and in a prayerful way. This diagram here sums up what our church is all about. Jesus is at the center. Everything that we do is about Jesus. We worship Jesus. We walk with Jesus. We work for Jesus. We witness about Jesus. But the way that we do those things, the way that we worship, the way that we walk and work and witness must be shaped by the Bible. It must happen in the context of community. And it must happen as we depend on prayer. And so today's message is going to be a little bit different. In fact, a number of the messages in the series are going to be a little bit different. Those of you who are a part of the Hope Church family, you're more accustomed to our Genesis series, which we're going to pick up in October, where we, in our Genesis series, we started at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and we read a few verses, and then the next week, we just picked up where we left off. We go verse by verse, word by word, line by line. Today, not so much. I think there's like 18 or 19 passages of Scripture that we're going to look at today. So we have our work cut out for us, so let me pray that, that we would be able to receive what God has for us and that I would be able to share that which would build up uh, the body of Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, in the name of Jesus, praying for the power of the Holy Spirit who you sent to inspire a Matthew so that he would write what he wrote, and Luke, and John, and Mark, and the Apostles. And so, Lord, we pray that that same Spirit who gave the inspiration, Lord, right now would give illumination, that you would open our eyes, that we would see all that Jesus is, and that that would shape all that we do. Lord, be with my mouth, be with my mind, help me to speak clearly, and help me to build up the body, help me to reach those who don't yet know you. And God, I pray that you would be with everyone who can hear my voice, that there would be a receptivity to what you are saying. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. So three points today, biblical, relational, and prayerful. The biblical one is going to be a little bit uh, longer, and so um, just buckle up. So the, the, the first thing that I want us to understand, if we're going to do ministry the way Jesus did ministry, as we follow Jesus, we are devoted to the Bible. We're devoted to Jesus' words and the Word of God. John read to us from Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school, you know, you know this, you know this story, you know this parable that Jesus tells you, build your house on the rock. And how we normally apply this story is that if your marriage is built on the rock, even though there may be, you know, financial uncertainty or there may be uh, uh, something happen in your marriage, as long as it's founded on the rock, no matter what storm or difficulty you're going to face, your marriage is going to be strong. Or if you're a teenager and as long as you build your life on the rock, no matter what storm of of peer pressure or difficulty or hardship, whatever storm comes your way. Now that is true, but that is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about not just some storm, but the storm. Jesus is actually referring, he's, he's hearkening back to Isaiah chapter 28, verses 14 to 18, where, where a, a shoddy shelter is being built And the storm is the ultimate final judgment of God, and the shelter ends up being destroyed. Jesus, when he's talking about the storm, he's referring to this theme all throughout the Old Testament that the storm refers to the final judgment of God. Jesus says that the way to determine whether you will stand or fall in the final judgment of God, the the, the line between heaven and hell at that ultimate judgment, he says the defining factor is his word. That whether or not we believe what he says about what it means to be human, what it means to be a sinner, what it means to need grace, what it means to be forgiven, what it means to place your faith in him, that is the deciding factor. His word matters. His word is the rock And if we are fixed to the rock, which is Christ, then we will stand in the judgment. If we're fixed on our own good deeds or our own ideas or worldly philosophy, that is sand, and that will not stand in the judgment. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, he said, heaven and hell will, will, sorry, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus says his word is eternal. It will last forever. Jesus says at the end of the day, it is his word that will stand. Now, some people zero in on what Jesus said. I mean, imagine, imagine what, what, what the disciples hearing this for the first time. Here is this Jewish carpenter wandering around teaching people, and he's saying that at the end of the world, all that's going to matter is what I say. It's an incredible statement. Now, some people, they, they, they want to zero in on what Jesus said here, and they sort of look at the Bible like this, that, that Jesus' words are the most important. And the, sometimes they're called red-letter Christians. You know, my Bible, I didn't want it to be this way, but my Bible has everything that Jesus said in red letters. Do you guys have that? And this idea that there's the Bible, and it's mostly good, 
but it's the stuff that Jesus said that's most important. And they kind of downplay the Old Testament, and they downplay the writing of, of the apostles in the in the New Testament. And what ends up happening is that these people, you know, they unhitch from the Old Testament, and then they cherry pick different statements that they like that Jesus has said and ignore all the stuff they don't like that he said, and then they create their own version of of Christianity. Now imagine for a minute if we just wanted to play along. Okay, fine. We will just listen to what Jesus said. Let's just, like, I believe the whole Bible, but Let's just have it as a thought experiment. Let's pretend that we're only going to listen to Jesus. The trouble with that mindset is that if you listen to Jesus long enough, he's going to tell you that you need to listen to him, and he's also going to tell you that you need to listen to the Old Testament. He's going to say, keep that hitched, man. Keep the old, don't, don't let it go. Let me give you a couple of uh, of examples. In Mark chapter 12, when Jesus is having a debate with the Pharisees, and Jesus won all of his debates with the Pharisees by quoting from the Old Testament that he was right and that they were wrong because they didn't understand the Scriptures. Jesus here is quoting from uh, Psalm 110. Look at what he says. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Jesus believed that David didn't write Psalm 110 on his own. No, he wrote it under the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit. Jesus believed that the Old Testament was inspired by the Word of God. Jesus was in another debate with the religious leaders about Psalm 82, and it's recorded in John chapter 10, and Jesus says, Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus referred to people like Moses and David and Solomon and Abraham and, and many other Old Testament characters as historical figures. Jesus referred to many events like Jonah being swallowed by the whale and the exodus as, and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as actual historical events. If you're going to listen to Jesus, he's going to tell you to listen to the Old Testament. Jesus made it most clear on the Sermon on the Mount when, when, when he said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. And an iota, that's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. The dot, that was used in the Hebrew alphabet or in Hebrew grammar. And so these are the smallest little parts of the Old Testament translated into Greek or in the original Hebrew. Jesus says they're all going to last. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I'm, I'm unhitching from nothing. But he, he says he, he's going to fulfill it. Abolish and fulfill. Fulfillment is not the opposite of abolish. He sets up the statement like he's going to talk about opposites. But if he was talking about opposites, he would say, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I have come to keep it exactly as it is. That's not what he said. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've actually come to fulfill it. How did Jesus fulfill it? Well, he fulfilled the moral aspect of the law because he lived a sinless life. He never once disobeyed any of the Ten Commandments or any of the other uh, commandments that are listed in God's Word. He, He fulfilled it by living a perfect, sinless life. He also fulfilled it by fulfilling all the prophecies and the predictions that even go all the way back to Genesis and Deuteronomy, which are in the law. So Jesus fulfilled the law, but then he also, morally, but he also fulfilled the law ceremonially. 
Because when he died on the cross, he was the lamb who was slain to take away the sin of the world. He was the sacrifice once for all. He's the reason why no one showed up with a lamb or a goat at the door before they came into worship. Because he fulfilled the ceremonial last. Now, some of you are thinking, well, how could Jesus tell us that we need to listen to the Old Testament? Ted, why did you trim your beard? And, and why are you wearing cotton and polyester? And how come some of us ate bacon this morning? Amen, hallelujah. It's because all of those Old Testament laws, the cleanliness laws, were all pointing to a need to have a clean heart. Circumcision and dietary laws, and all they were all about clean and unclean. But when Jesus made that ultimate sacrifice, he made us ultimately clean. And so the law has been fulfilled. But it doesn't mean that just because it's been fulfilled that we don't need it. Listen, if you want to understand who Jesus is, if you truly love him and want to follow him, again, he will tell you to read the Old Testament. And here's why. He said in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Unless we understand the Old Testament, we won't understand what Jesus has accomplished in the New Testament. Similarly, he said in Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So if you're going to listen to Jesus, he's going to tell you to listen to the Old Testament. Now, yes, it is true. The law has been fulfilled. And yes, we do have to do the hard work of, of hermeneutics and interpretation. We need to understand that there's a new covenant and an old covenant, that there's, there's dispensations or there's different continuity and discontinuity. Studying the Old Testament is hard work, but it is worth it because it points us to Jesus, and it's all about Jesus. So, we got to be done with this mindset that, you know, we just focus on Jesus' words and not the Old Testament. No, the Old Testament is just as inspired. The Old Testament is just as authoritative. But what about the writings of the apostles? Some people, you know, they think Paul is sexist or they don't like what Paul says about this or, or about that. And, and so they, I really want to focus on Jesus because I don't want to have to follow some of the New Testament commands. Well, again, we need to understand that Jesus gave his disciples significant authority during his ministry. Even though Jesus was preaching and teaching, look at what he said to his disciples when he sent them out in Luke chapter 10, verse 16. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Jesus gave his apostles authority that when they spoke, they spoke with the authority. Again, if you're going to listen to Jesus, you have to listen to the rest of the New Testament. Because if you hear the New Testament, you hear Jesus speaking through the apostles. Jesus gave them authority, but then he also gave them a promise. After Jesus washed their feet and they're having the Passover meal together, Jesus reminded his disciples, he's like, I got way more content to share with you, but if I shared it with you right now, your heads would explode. And he told them in John 16, verses 12 to 15, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. 
For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus here is promising that the New Testament apostles would be led by the Holy Spirit to make those connections between the Old Testament and what Jesus has done, to make those predictions and prophecies about the ultimate end, to give those commands about how Christians are supposed to live in light of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. So all 66 books of the Bible The Old Testament, the New Testament, we can't elevate Jesus' teaching over the teaching of the apostles. It's it's a whole package deal. It's an all or nothing. We are following Jesus, and because of that, we follow the Old Testament, we follow the New Testament, we follow his teaching as well. And this is why Jesus wants us to follow his word in, in John 17. That same night, Jesus is praying for them, and he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The apostles have been given the word of God, and the world will hate the apostles, will hate the followers of Jesus because the word of God speaks with authority. Jesus spoke with authority. What did they do? They put him on a cross. So Jesus is warning his disciples in this prayer, showing that it's going, it's going to happen for you guys as well. People are not going to want to submit to the authority of the word of God. It goes on to say in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Then he says in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To sanctify means to be made holy. The way that a Christian becomes holy is through exposure to the Word of God, to the truth. It's what sanctifies us. The way that a church community becomes a holy community is by by focusing on the Word of God and its teaching. So loved ones, we live in a culture that says listen to your heart and follow your own desires and don't let anyone tell you what you can and can't do. Jesus says, no, it's not like that at all. I tell you what you can and can't do. And don't reject authority because the word of God needs to be your ultimate authority. This is very different from how the rest of the world says we ought to live. So here at Hope Church, we need to make sure that the Bible is what is our ultimate authority. Not tradition, but the Word of God. Now you might be looking around at this, at this church in sort of a, a modernish building, and there's no stained glass, there's no wooden pews, I'm not wearing robes, and you're like, tradition? Why would we be worried about tradition here at Hope Church? Listen, you don't need to be old to have tradition, okay? Daniel always sits in the front row. That's like a tradition, but it's not, it's not commanded in the Bible that Daniel always has to sit in the front row. It's, but but oh, you always collect the offering at this particular time, or we do this many songs, or a sermon needs to be this long. Listen, we need to be really careful. Or we, we always do this ministry on this particular night, and some things can become like sacred cows 
that are actually, it's not actually commanded in the Word of God that we need to do that. So as a church family, we need to be really careful that we aren't doing things because of tradition, because that's the way we've always done it. We also can't be trendy. We can't just do whatever we think, whatever the church down the street is doing or whatever we saw on YouTube. The idea is that we need to follow the Word of God. Furthermore, you might notice that this, this wording here at Hope Church is a little bit new. Uh, we introduced it last year in the All Together Now series, this idea of doing things biblically, relationally, and prayerfully. And th there's a reason why we're emphasizing this idea of being biblical. One of the things that we used to often teach here at Hope Church, and it wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but we talked about the centrality and the importance of preaching. Preaching the Word of God without, a, without apology, unapologetic preaching. Now, the danger with emphasizing that is it emphasized one activity done by one man once a week. And the Word of God is at work among the people of God far much more than just through one person. And so, we're not just simply emphasizing preaching. Our, our desire is to emphasize being biblical. Because there are biblical counselors or soul care mentors who are using the Word of God to help heal hearts that have been broken by sinful addiction or by trauma or by abuse. And they are using the Word of God in a biblical way. There are small group leaders who are helping train up disciples from Jesus Christ using the Word of God. There's youth leaders and young adult leaders. There's the way that you encourage and have conversations with each other. Being biblical is not just the responsibility of one preacher on Sunday morning. It's, the, it's our whole body that is committed to following the authority of, of the Word of God. And that shapes so much of what we do as, as a church family. You see, the Bible tells us what we ought to believe. The Bible also tells us how we are to behave. But the Bible also tells us about the importance of where we belong. And that leads us to the next section. That if, and, and again, the, the first section was a little bit long. These next two are going to come a little, bit a little bit faster. That if we follow Jesus, we're going to follow him in the realm of relationships. And we're going to be focused on developing relationships. We're not just here to study the Bible and go off and try to obey the Bible on our own. The idea is that we study the Bible in community and we, and we develop relationships with one another. Again, we see this modeled by Jesus in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. This is very early on in Jesus' ministry. It says, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Apostle means to be sent out. The ultimate goal was so that these guys would be sent out to preach. But do you notice that, that line, the first purpose of why he called them together? So that they might be with him. That they would just be with him. That, that they would travel with Jesus and eat with Jesus and teach with Jesus. That, that Jesus wanted to do his ministry in the context of community. And then when you fast forward to the book of Acts and you see Peter and Paul and, and people traveling around the world, you notice something. They're never just going by themselves. They're always bringing Timothy or Titus along with them. There's always a group of people who are going along and they are establishing not just individual Christians, but local churches. It is all about building relationships. 
You think about what the New Testament, how the New Testament authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit describe the church. The church is a temple or, or a building or that the church is a family, or, or the church is a bride, or the body. Now, all of those metaphors break down if you try to do it as an individual. You, 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 you can't look at a bunch of stones randomly placed around a field and call that a building. That's not a building, that's a ruin. It's only a building when the stones come together. A family that never eats together, never talks together, never relates, that's a very unhealthy family. The family needs to be together to, to be a family. And I mean, a, a body or a bride that's like dismembered, that's, that's just grotesque and quite disturbing. All of the metaphors point to the idea of relationship, of being together, of being one. Jesus told his disciples in John 13, verses 34 and 35, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. So the love that Jesus has shown us, that sets the standard for how we ought to love one another. You also are to love one another. Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When Jesus was on the earth, how did... How did people know who his disciples were? Well, they were the guys all crowded around Jesus. They were the guys following Jesus from town to town. Those were the disciples. How could you know who a disciple is? They were the ones who were with Jesus. Well, now that Jesus has ascended and he sent his Holy Spirit, how do you know who the followers of Jesus are? There's no, there's no physical Jesus that you can physically stand beside to say, I'm with him. Now the way to determine whether or not someone is a disciple or not is do they have love for other disciples? And do they love one, one another the way that Christ has loved us? And it all needs to be rooted in our own personal relationship with, with Jesus. And out of the overflow of how Jesus loves us, we are to love other people. The New Testament authors pick up on this with statements like this. Uh, Andrew Wong in our teaching team meeting reminded me of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us. So we love one another because Jesus has loved us. Romans 15, 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Ephesians 4, 32, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Loved ones, we're called to love one another and love one another the way that Christ has loved us. It, it's time to be done with this isolated personal relationship with Jesus, just me and him. It's all about him putting us in relationship with other Christians, loving, reaching out to those who are lost and welcoming them and forgiving them. I want to give a little bit of a warning because I know there are a number of people who are new to our church family. And uh, every now and again, when I do a membership conversation with someone who's new, oftentimes, sorry, not oftentimes, but sometimes people come and they have a very painful story about a previous experience at another church where they were hurt or they were disappointed, expectations were here, and reality was somewhere very, very far away from that, and they didn't feel heard, and they didn't feel loved, and they feel very discouraged, and Part of our membership process is to try to help people finish well, to, to not allow uh, uh, any bitterness to grow, to go back to their, uh, to their church, to make things right before starting here. 
You know what, there, there's, there's no exhilaration quite like the unity within a church and the, the joy and the love that you can experience, but there's also no hurt that's quite like being hurt by another brother or sister in Christ. And I, I just want to give you a warning that if you're new, new here at Hope Church, you haven't, you haven't gone from a church that hurts people and where people get hurt to a new church where that doesn't happen, okay? It won't be on purpose, but you will get hurt here. It, it could be the person down the row. You look at them right now. It could be you. I could hurt you. You could hurt me. Because we are human and because we are still in the process of sanctification and because sin still resides within our flesh, there may be times where there are misunderstandings where there's, it's going to happen here, which is why we need to remember that it's all about Jesus. Jesus loved, so we must love. Jesus welcomed, so we must welcome. Jesus forgave, so we must forgive. We need to be ready to, 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 to reconcile and to love one another. It's only a matter of of time before we are going to have to put this into practice personally with another brother or sister in Christ. We love, we welcome, we forgive because Christ has loved and welcomed and forgiven us. We also do a lot of eating together here at, uh, here at Hope Church. And I'm not sure if you've noticed it, but if you read the Gospels, Jesus is either on his way to dinner, getting ready to sit down to dinner, having dinner, or just finished a meal. Jesus was always eating. In fact, Tim Chester, one of, one of my favorite authors, wrote a whole book called Meals with, with Jesus, and he describes how Luke chapter 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. Luke 7, Jesus is anointed during a, a meal at Simon the Pharisee's house. Luke 9, Jesus feeds 5,000. Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Martha and Mary. Luke 11, Jesus condemns religious leaders during a meal. Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he tells a parable about a meal and then urges people to invite poor to their meals rather than their friends. Luke 19, Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. Luke 22, Jesus eats the Passover meal with his disciples. Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal with his two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember, he broke bread and their eyes were open. Then, when he's with the other disciples, he eats fish. Now, some people think that he ate fish to show, I'm not a ghost, I'm a physical body. I think he ate fish to be like, oh, he's eating. Of course, it's Jesus. This is why it was said about Jesus in Luke 7, uh, I think it's verse, verse 24 coming up on the screen, 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus came eating, so Hope Church is coming and we're eating, okay? We have a cafe for a reason. We, we share meals together as a church family for a reason. We, this is part of being biblical. This is part of being relational. It is a way for us to grow in our love for one another. So today, we're having a potluck, right? We, got, we have a, a members meeting coming up. We'll spend an hour talking about church business and praying together, yada, yada, yada. And then we get on with the good stuff. We have a, we're having a potluck. And uh, this time we're taking the, the, the burden of responsibility of the main course off of the congregation. We're going to grill some burgers. It's going to be awesome tonight at 6 o'clock if you're a member here at Hope Church. And then as an outreach, we're having friends for dinner where we're trying to capitalize on Thanksgiving with international students to invite people into our homes so that we can share meals with them and relate to them with the hope of sharing the gospel with them. 
And so, loved ones, we, we want to be engaged in relationship with one another. Small groups, young adults, 30-plus, youth, men's and women's, these are, these are relationship-building ministries in our church, but also serving as well. Uh, last week, Jameson got the whole worship team together, all the musicians and all the singers, and they had a barbecue. Why? Because Jameson cares more about how his team is doing as a person as opposed to what they are doing for the church. How someone is doing as a person matters more than what role they are fulfilling in the church. We care more about who you are than what you do or how you're doing than, than what you are doing. So we are de- focused on developing relationships as a, as a church family. And then thirdly, we're depending on prayer. We're depending on prayer So we are devoted to the Bible, we're developing relationships, and we're depending on prayer. Again, we live in such a hurried society. We we want to move from one thing to the next. We're always filling up our calendars. There can't be any white space. We want to make sure that we're being as productive as we possibly can be. We double book ourselves. And here is Jesus who is saying, just slow down, just stop, just pray, just commune with my Father. And we see him model this. In in Mark uh, chapter 1, we see see Jesus go out while it's still dark. Mark 1, 35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And then the disciples, again, they see all this white space in the calendar. They see all of the demands of ministry. They see all the stuff that could get done that's not getting done. It says, Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. Get up off your knees. Come on, come on. There's ministry to be done. But Jesus showed where his priority was. It was relating to the Father, not just his priority, but where the the power for his ministry was, was coming from. You see, every time we stop and pray, it's, it's really an act of faith. Paul Miller talks about this in his book, A Praying Life. Every minute you spend praying is one minute you can't do what you're supposed to be doing. Every time that you pray, you actually have less time to do your parenting or to get your job done or to get to work on time or whatever that may be. So prayer, the act of praying, even of itself, is a step of faith to say, I would rather have 15 minutes of prayer and know that the next 45 minutes I've got God with me than 60 minutes on my own. That I would rather stop and slow down and recognize that I am not omnipresent. I can't be everywhere. I'm not omnipotent. I don't have all the power or the strength to do everything that needs to be done or to be everywhere that I'm supposed to be or to know everything that I'm supposed to know. And so I am actually just going to stop right now as an act of faith and I'm going to devote some time, time that I could be using to getting stuff done, to praying to the omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent God to make sure that we're rightly aligned with him. We are dependent on prayer. 
Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7 to 11, he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus said, it never hurts to ask. Just ask. You don't have because you don't ask. And then he says what he so often says. He uses a humorous parable and he says, Which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? Again, notice he's talking about food. He's always got food on his mind. Or if he asked for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven who is in, will will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus is always telling, the parable of the persistent widow, Jesus is saying, my God's not like, my father is not like some grumpy judge. He is a loving father. The parable of the friend who comes knocking in the middle of the night. Your father is not like some friend who's inconvenienced by you bothering him at night. No. Jesus makes it clear in the way that he taught about prayer. He never once guilts us into praying. No, he wants to motivate us by knowing who his father is and how much his father loves us. So we are dependent on prayer. Jared C. Wilson says that that prayer is expressed helplessness. When we're not engaged in prayer, it's because we feel like we got this. The extent to which you are not engaged in prayer is the extent to which you are relying on your own strength. A number of years ago, uh, when our kids started uh, getting older, I finally gave in, and uh, we got a minivan. I cried all the way to to the dealership. Still can't believe it's true. We held out for as long as we could. Now our boys are getting bigger, they're getting stronger. It is possible, if we wanted, our, our boys could get behind the minivan and they could push it. They could have pushed their way all down Steeles Road, pushed it down Winston Churchill. We could have pushed the minivan to church this morning. They got that much energy. <laughs> and when we needed to stop, if we come into a red light, some of them, you know, could have ran, run to the front and try to push it. The others could have pulled it back. You can push. You put it in neutral. It's functional. You know, mom and dad can ride in the car and the, the, the brothers can, can push. It's functional. Maybe I should be out there pushing too. I don't know. It's functional. But it's way better just to get some gas and to use the gas pedal and the brake pedal. Just because something's functional doesn't mean that's how it was designed to function. Too much of church is us pushing a minivan around. Too much of church is us and our own strength. Oh, this is a capable leader. That person's really gifted. They're really charismatic. Oh, there's enough finances here. Oh, we have this uh, copy and paste program that we can use. Too much of us is just pushing the minivan. And sometimes you get a little bit of momentum and it feels like it's, it's going and it's going on its own. But oftentimes people either get tired and worn up and give, it, give out or the thing crashes. And yeah, if you really need to get going, you don't seem to have time, you could maybe push. But it's way better just stop for gas. Fuel up. Use the vehicle the way that it was intended to be used. And part of this series is for us to remember that prayer is the motor of the church. That the Spirit of God is the fuel for that motor. And that prayer is how we move 
things forward. It's not our ingenuity. It's not our effort. It's not our giftedness or our charisma or our resources. It is all about depending on the Lord. Jesus made it clear there were no automobiles, but there was lots of agriculture. And Jesus basically says the same metaphor in John 15. He says, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's read that last verse, starting at verse 5, all together. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, it is all about him. And as we follow him, we're devoted to the Bible. We are developing relationships and we are dependent on prayer because apart from him, we can do nothing. And so this is what we're all about here at, uh, here at Hope Church. Uh, go to the next slide. Jesus is at the center. Yes, we're going to worship and we're going to walk and we're going to work and we're going to witness, but the way that we do those things is so vitally important. We're going to worship according to the Bible and in the context of relationships and in the context of prayer. We're going to do the same thing for walking and working and uh, witnessing. Let me, uh, let me close us uh, in prayer and uh, so let's all bow our heads. Uh, so Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son and come to you by the power of your Spirit. Just even praying for your help right now, we know that we don't pray as we ought. We know that we often live the way our culture prescribes to be individualized and on our own, and we often lean away from community rather than leaning into it. And God, we so often just want to do things our own way rather than following the way of your word. But God, I pray that you would help us as we gather in small groups and talk about these passages, as we gather as men's ministries and women's ministries and young adults and 30 plus, Lord, I, I pray even as we talk after the service that we would be committed to speaking the Bible to one another and growing in relationships with one another and, and praying uh, for one another as well. Lord, you are the vine, we're the branches. You are the source of power and strength. And so we pray that you would help us to grow closer to you. God, we love you and we thank you. Help us to build our lives on the rock of your word. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.